the moment where my mentality completely changed. I rang in New Year's that year alone in a dark hospital room. This is the Begin Within podcast, where we believe real, lasting health and fitness requires you to start inside before you work out. I'm your host, Nate Slegger, and I'm here to show you behind the scenes of fitness. You already know exercise is good for you, but what about all the other things in life that affect your fitness? If you're looking for extra motivation to get started or to make sure you keep going, this is the place for you. Produced by BeginWithin.fit. My guest today is Nicholas Heenan. He's an author. He is a public speaker. He is a motivator. He inspires like crazy um, as he shares his story. Not only his story of um, battling back from morbid obesity, starting at 621 pounds, but um, also his journey in um, dealing with the diagnosis of schizophrenia when he was a young man. Um, when I completed the interview with him, when I when I had just finished up the call, um, I just I was I was overwhelmed with emotion to be able to um, spend some time with him, to be able to listen to him explain just so plainly and so clearly and openly and honestly. Um, his journey and the lessons he's learned. And I was so excited because I knew I was going to be able to share it with you. And I am so grateful and so um, proud of what Nicholas has accomplished um, and so sure that in listening to his story that you are going to be motivated and inspired to live the best life that you can in terms of health and wellness and to really take um, take the process seriously. There's a few themes that I want you to listen for as you hear his interview. And the very first one is um, around the idea of just life as a, as a whole, life as a system. Uh, we have a way sometimes of breaking things down into tiny parts and saying like, oh, I just need to lose weight as though that's just a, you know, it's a tiny part of life or I need to eat healthier or um, this thing is bugging me and I want to fix it. Um, you know, as I listened to Nicholas share his story, um, one of the themes that stood out to me was um, the theme of life as a system, life as a system of interconnected things. You're going to hear that in his story, not just in terms of, you know, the connection between mental health, physical health, um, but the connection between um, his motivation and his progress in the journey and the people around him that were supporting him. So I want you to listen for that. Um, the second thing I want to listen, I want you to listen for is the thing that got him going and the thing that still motivates him. You're going to hear at the beginning, you're going to hear it in his, you know, closing comments in response to my question of, you know, what advice would you give somebody who's just starting out? 
Um, I won't spoil it. I want you to listen closely for the things that really reached him and got him, got him going. And one final thing that I want you to listen for is how he has found things that he enjoys to help him along in the process. You know, he really talks about how important that is um, in the in the journey of living a better and healthier life. So uh, listen for that, and and I want you to think about yourself and how you might be able to apply that to your own health, fitness, and wellness. Here is my interview with Nicholas Heenan. My peak weight came in on September 1st, 2013. Uh, I weighed in at 621 pounds, and I knew that uh, because my best friend is a guy named David Schupach, who's instrumental in this story. Uh, we used, at that point, he had attempted to try and, and assist me and coach me and try to, to help me lose weight. And we can talk a little bit more about the sense of urgency that went into that, but I'll start here. Yeah. Okay. And that is, um, so we had already, by that time, we had begun walking around the block that I live on. It's about a 10th of a mile. And uh, again, I'll get into that a little bit later, but um, he worked at, uh, JJ Keller, uh, one of the plants down in Nina, just outside of Nina, kind of on the way to Oshkosh and a normal scale generally doesn't go up to 600 pounds. So I couldn't buy a scale from Walmart and go and stand on mm -hmm. it because it wouldn't go that high. Um, and I didn't like going to doctor's offices. They generally had scales that could. So, uh, what he would do is he would take me in. He worked in the mailroom and they okay. had a freight elevator or a freight uh, scale. And I stood on for the first couple of months of this journey, I had to stand on a freight scale in order to get my own weight. And okay. so I know it was September 1st, 2013. I weighed 621 pounds. Okay. Uh, part of this, again, going back now a little bit earlier was my friend, David. And obviously I, I had been hovering between 500 and 600 for a couple of years at that point. Um, and we had a fire out in my front yard and just after everybody had left, it was him and I, and he decided that this was going to be his moment to try and reach me. Hmm. And he, he had a very strong heart to heart conversation with me. And he said, you are worth this. The people in your world love you and want you to be around. Um, and you need to believe that that's true. He, he knew that I didn't believe I was worth making any changes. Hmm. And when all I had heard up to that point, and, and these are very well-meaning people, but my friends and my family had all stressed all of the things that I would lose by not making any changes. Whereas the, the tact that David took was, a much more positive one. It wasn't, mm -hmm. this is what's going to happen if you don't change. It was, you'll get more life and more enjoyment out of life by making these changes. And it was something about that mentality that made me want to give it a shot. Mm -hmm. So this is back in August of 2013. We started uh, just by walking around the block and I could not walk a 10th of a mile without stopping at that point. Okay. So we started doing it. Uh, I grabbed a, I had a, a metal folding chair. I still have the chair in my garage. I, one of my uh, key things has been keeping 
little mementos and reminders yeah. throughout this entire process. So I still have the chair. Yeah, I remember seeing it in your, on yep. your Facebook. Yeah. Yep. So uh, we'd take the chair. I would walk uh, as far as I could. The first day I had to sit down four times, walking a tenth of a mile. I had to take a break four times in there, uh, but we stuck with it. And eventually I could do it only taking three breaks and then two breaks. And eventually then we could walk around the block twice and I would have to take one or two breaks in each one. Um, so uh, just as, as that was beginning to ramp up, um, that's when part of the ugliness of me being 600 pounds reared its ugly head. So uh, my legs were so filled with fluid and overblown that cracks and fissures would appear kind of lengthwise from my knee to my ankle in the skin. Okay. And because my legs were so swollen, they were probably three or four times the size of a normal leg. Um, I will send you, I have a picture of my legs and I'll send you a couple of pictures that document the journey. So if you want to include sure. them on a Facebook yeah. post, um, I have a picture of what my legs look like. Okay. And um, the the, the cracks, the skin couldn't, accom uh, couldn't accommodate it. And also the white blood cells, uh, the capillaries that carry white blood cells couldn't reach every part of my leg. So not only were the openings there for bacteria, but the parts of my body that would fight off bacterial infection couldn't get to where these bacteria were mm -hmm. forming. And so as a result, I would get these real horrible staph infections in my left leg. Um, between 2002 and my last one was July of 2019. I've, I've gone through 13 staph infections in my left leg. Oh, man. And now the two that I've had since I've lost the weight have been far more mild. Uh, but at its worst, uh, it would start off as a little, um, it would feel like pins and needles, but just a real small spot on the back of my leg. And there would be a red spot. And I'm telling you within an hour, I would go from normal to my entire lower part of my left leg would be red. Um, <clears throat> I would have to go to the hospital. My temperature would be normal. It would go to 104 degrees. My leg within a couple of hours would turn from red to purple to black as the bacteria spread. You could see the, the, the redness kind of tracking with my veins up the inside of my legs. Hmm. Um, and I'd have to go to the hospital I would spend six or seven days in the hospital on three anti IV antibiotics the entire time. Uh, generally for the first three days, I would drift in and out of consciousness. It got, it got pretty bad. And uh, part, the worst part I remember always, each time we had to do this, they had to check for a blood clot because this is always one of the symptoms. If it was, it was likely an infection, but they always had to check for a blood clot. And my, the skin on my leg when I would have these infections would be intensely sensitive. And so if you blew air over it, it would be painful. That's how sensitive the skin was in my leg. And so they had to check for blood clots using an ultrasound. Now I know uh, you're, you're familiar with an ultrasound, but just in case anybody in your audience doesn't, uh, they would actually give me a tongue depressor to bite down on um, because they would have to put the gel on my leg and then take that wand and jam it into my leg and move it around to check for blood clots. And that was, I, I have torn my ACL. I have dislocated shoulders. I have uh, severe arthritis in both of my knees, my hip, uh, and nothing has ever hurt as bad as, as those ultrasound sessions checking for 
oh. checking for a blood clot. Uh, my ask my mother sometime what my scream sounded like. <laughs> so anyway, uh, just to give you a little background information yeah. on that. So moving forward back again to uh, 2013, we started in August. I weighed my peak in September 1st of 2013, and we were starting to really build up some momentum. And I got an infection in October. Okay spent a week in the hospital um, and got out starting to recover. And I got another one in November. Oh man. So a month later I got another one and it, it, it sparked back up again. And the one in November of 2013 was the worst of all 13 of them because the, the, the bacteria went septic. It got into my bloodstream mm -hmm. um, and I almost died that week, but I recovered. Uh, I was spent eight days in the hospital that time, uh, finally felt a little bit better, started to, to try and recover and, and, and ramp up everything again. And I got another one in December. Oh, wow. So I, I if, if, if anybody here is listening is a Packer game, I remember it very distinctly. I'd uh, settled in. I was watching the Packer bear game in two, in December of 2013. I think it was December 28th. <clears throat> And it was the game where Rogers hits Randall Cobb with the bomb at the end of the game to win it. And the Packers had to win to go to the playoffs. And that was, I started watching that game. I watched the opening kickoff at my house. Uh, and I watched the end of it from my hospital room, um, kind of in a daze. That's how quickly all of that uh -huh. happened. Uh, but it did lead to the moment where my mentality completely changed. And that was again, about December 28th. I rang in new year's that year alone in a dark hospital room. My family had all come earlier in the day, but they had all gone home. And it was, I rang in the new year alone in a dark hospital room. Mm -hmm. And that was my moment where I said, either I have to make changes or I'm going to keep getting these infections and eventually the antibiotics aren't going to be able to fight it off. And it's going to be a pretty painful, horrible death. And I'm going to be in a hospital room in my early thirties dead. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's when I, I decided to start looking into things a little bit more seriously. Uh, my mother and I went to the bariatric surgery, the, the initial meeting at, at Theta Clark uh, that next week in the first week of January. And that's when my recovery really began to accelerate. Wow. So if Man. you're talking about that moment where everything yeah. started to kind of come together, it's more of a three to four month period of extreme highs and extreme lows uh, that really started to spark that journey. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that. Oh, no problem. Man. And, and, and just to, to, to give you the postscript on that part of it, uh, in January, I went to the meeting. Um, I, this was the third time I had attempted the initial meeting at the bariatric clinic at Theta okay. Clark. The first two times I had started the process and given up on it, uh, mainly because I did not pass the psychological portion of it. They give you a psychological exam. And the, the point in reasoning of it is to ensure that you are in a mental state that will enable you to be successful mm -hmm. after you have bariatric surgery. Okay. And even this time, the third time, I, I was deemed not psychologically ready. Uh, and we'll get more into the mental, yeah. my mental health background in a little bit. <clears throat> but the, the option was I could take an eight week bariatric course to kind okay. of prepare me for what life was like before and after surgery. And the previous two times I didn't want to go to the course. Well, this time I did go to the class and I passed. 
Uh, that would have been in May of 2014. 14. Yeah. And uh, I was approved for surgery. I had surgery on July 28th, 2014. Okay. Uh, from the peak of 621, uh, I had lost 52 pounds between September 1st, 2013 and July 28th, 2014. And oh. now from my peak, I've lost 367 pounds. Dude. Yeah. So um, that's, yeah. that's how that all began. And if we want to get into more of the details of what life was like before and after bariatric surgery, uh, I'm more than happy to get into that. Uh, but that's the bare bones part of the story. In that whole process, when it came to like exercise, obviously eating differently, like everything transformed for you. What were some of the biggest um, challenges? Some of the biggest challenges? Yeah. Uh, it, it's, 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 some this also ties into advice that I would give to people who want yeah. to make a change. And the, the common trope that you hear is that the first day is the hardest or the first week is the hardest. And I don't, in my experience, I don't think that's the case. Okay. Uh, because on your first day in your first week, you're still revved up by the excitement and the energy and the enthusiasm. Yeah. In my opinion, it's week three, four, five, and six when the fun and the enthusiasm is worn off. You haven't maybe made as much progress as you had expected or had hoped for. And it's about gritting your teeth and starting to grind it out day in and day out, much like a job. And the trick is trying to find things that you enjoy. I'm a firm believer okay. in enjoying the exercise and being passionate and loving it. Yeah. Because if you try to trick yourself into, uh, if it feels like work, you're going to do whatever you can. You're going to play tricks in your own mind to try and get out of it. And so the key is to find something that you enjoy doing. And for me, I don't like running. Um, and, and my, the arthritis in my knees and my hips tells you that I don't like run. Uh, I don't like mm -hmm. running. So I still have to do some sort of cardio work. And so what I did is I have a, a, a workout playlist on my iPhone and I developed a dance routine for every single song on that on that playlist. So when I go and you can ask anybody at experience or crunch, I have a bit of a following in both places. Now I, I do a dance on the treadmill at a, at a lower speed. So I'm not running, but I'm still getting my heart rate up to where it needs to be. And you know me and for the people that are out yep. there, I am a natural showman. I love being out in front of people. I love interacting with people. Um, I have no problems about making myself look like a fool in front of people because I, I, uh, I love the attention. I won't lie. Uh, as, a, as a matter of fact, one of the, one of the, the great lines that we tell, I now have a three-year-old daughter and she is also loving, cannot stand pathologically needs to be the center of attention at all okay. times. And the running joke in the family is me looking at other people and family members and going, I have no idea where she got that from. <laughs> so, and, and to be real honest with you, even though it was uncomfortable at the time, when I was 400, 500, 600 pounds, no matter what you do, you're always going to attract attention and attract eyeballs. In the moment, it may be unwanted, but now that I've lost the weight, it has made me that much more comfortable being yeah. the center of attention. And so it, it, was, it was a very natural progression for me to use my Facebook page as a platform to share my story, both through mental health and through morbid obesity, because I it's not even that I don't mind being the center of attention or, or don't mind sharing the lurid details of that, but <clears throat> I embrace yeah. it. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. And I'm like, I got to tell you, like, you're, you're just an entertaining guy all around. <laughs> we'll try to keep that fun. to a, a lot of fun. Um, this is a very serious podcast. <laughs> um, what about, so we talk about a little bit about challenges. What about some of the like collateral unexpected benefits for you in making, you know, this huge transformation? You bet. And there is one that always sticks out in my mind. Uh, and I will remember it until the day I die. I had lost a little bit of weight. And I was probably in the 400s at this point, maybe in the, in the high 300s. And I was walking from my car to the gym and it was winter. And this was very important because when I was 600 pounds, if I fell down and I didn't have something to pull on or hold on to, I couldn't physically pull myself up. Yeah. And as a result, one of the defense mechanisms that I developed was I always looked down at the ground, especially in winter, because if you slip and fall, it may be a, a very difficult time getting back yeah. on my feet again. And what I noticed was the, 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 the screen printed signing on the door of the gym. And what I noticed is I was midway from my car to the door and I was reading the print on the door. I wasn't looking down at the ground. My eyes were level looking forward. Hmm. And that was an intensely confidence building experience for me. I didn't have to look down anymore. I could look up because if I slipped and fell, I could get myself back up again. And there's also a metaphorical meaning in there. If, if yeah. you can catch it where I'm not looking down, I'm looking forward. Yeah. Awesome. Wow. And that was, that was one of those, uh, the, the, the confidence, the self-confidence that I built in my own abilities, my own um, leadership capabilities, my own ability to stand in front of a group of people and, and share my story that all traces back to that moment when I wasn't looking down, I was looking forward. Yeah, man. And I, I love, you said this earlier, but I love that you savored all those little moments, those little things along the way that really a made a big fact, difference. As a matter of fact, my gym bag isn't a gym bag. Um, when I was <laughs> 400, 500, 600 pounds, uh, I had very severe sleep apnea. And so I used a CPAP machine. Mm. And now my CPAP traveling case is my gym bag. I still have the chair in my garage. Yeah. Um, I, one of my favorite songs, I'll get off on a little bit of a tangent here, sure. is the Simon and Garfunkel song, The Boxer. And in the third verse of the songs, he talks about how he carries little reminders of every glove that laid him down or cut him down to size. And so I carry little reminders, not only in my mind, but physically around me to remind me of how far I've come so that when I have tough days, I can realize that no matter how bad my day is right now, it's never as bad as every single day used to be. And I think that's really important because, and again, it's not just the initial getting over the initial obstacle, because even after I lost the weight, even after I got past the mental health challenges, or at least the major parts of the mental health challenges, mm -hmm. I still have a life to live. And I still have to deal with challenges of everyday life. And so right. when you throw that much effort and emotion into overcoming one thing, um, you still have, you can't expend all of your energy because you still have a life to live. I still have a three-year-old daughter, you know? So mm -hmm. um, I, I yeah. think that's something that we always have to keep in mind too, is life doesn't end when you overcome or win a great victory. Yeah. Hmm. Nice, man. Powerful words of wisdom. 
Thanks. <laughs> I've lived about <laughs> 70 years of life in my 39 years. So, uh, can I, I yeah. Got, so the mental, mental health piece kind of sure. came up again. Could, could you tell me a little bit about a little bit about that? Just take a, you know, absolutely. I'll give you a bare bones kind of idea. So yeah. when I, when I was 19, I was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Um, I would experience visual auditory, um, uh, olfactory hallucinations. I would smell things that were not real. I would see people, I would hear voices. And, um, so I think most people that are listening to this podcast will understand what that voice inside your head sounds like the self-defeating words, the, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I would be better off if I were not here. Um, the people don't love me. They just tolerate me and, and they just barely tolerate me. That was kind of what my voices were like, except I could physically hear them mm. uh, and they were constant. Um, wow. And especially as my stress level would go up, they would get worse and more numerous and louder. Um, and eventually visually and, and auditory hallucinations, I had delusions. I believed that my family members, I was a college student at the time. I used to think my professors were conspiring against me. I used to think that there were um, implanted chips in my arm and people were following me everywhere I would go. Uh, that's where the paranoid delusions would come in. Um, I did uh, open up to my mother about that. Uh, and just a, another side note, and this is something I harp on as a volunteer with the National Alliance on Mental Illness now is one of the biggest myths and stigmas about mental challenges and mental illness these days is that people who are, who are mentally ill come from broken families or families that deal with physical, sexual, psychological abuse um, or, or single parent mm -hmm. families, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. And uh, I am the proof that that's not always the case. Often that is the case, but I came from a family that had two loving parents. Uh, my dad was a police officer. My mother was an accountant. Uh, they supported me throughout my childhood. Uh, I was a, a football and hockey team captain in high school. I was a, a top-notch honor student. I was a, a DECA leader with our local business junior, junior achievement group. And so I am living proof that mental illness does not discriminate. It can hit anywhere at any time. And, uh, you know, I was kind of the, the all American golden boy and I still succumbed to this illness early on in life. So uh, when I was 19, I was diagnosed. I got the, I got some help for about five years. I was in and out of hospitals, um, primarily the fifth floor uh, at St. Elizabeth's, the psychiatric ward there. Um, it, it was during one of those days when, you start to have all of those mental images of what it means to be crazy, to be a lunatic, to, to you're insane. And you, another one of those very dark moments is when you're lying there alone in a, in a, in, on the bed in a psychiatric ward. And you realize that I am one of those people. I am one of quote unquote them. Um, and that's another dark moment too, because you have those images in your mind and you start saying, I'm that. Uh, and it, it took me a long time to really, get over that. So five years of, of in and out of hospitals, I survived two suicide attempts. Um, the medications were awful uh, until I found the right combination. Um, Abilify and Melbutrin XL, I still take them every single morning. I will take them every morning for the rest of my life. Uh, but it helped overcome the psychotropic symptoms. The problem is when you spend that much time just trying to exist on a day-to-day -day basis, you develop poor lifestyle habits. Mm -hmm. 
I, from going from a football player and a hockey player in high school, I didn't exercise anymore. Um, I ate to compensate for my own depression and anxiety uh, over that entire five-year span. But in the medications, stop my metabolism. That is a potential side effect of those medications. And so that's when I really began to balloon and put on weight at an incredibly rapid pace. And so it was one that led directly to the other. So we go from the mental, the mental health problems yeah. lead directly to the weight and the weight leads directly to the infection issues that I had with my legs. And so again, it, it's very important to realize that these things are not separate from each other hmm. and they, they are interconnected. And if you don't, you have to find a way to, to manage all of it. And, and it's, it's it, it individually unique. Yeah. Just because something worked for me doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody else. But again, getting back to that wisdom part is you, you have to take into account all of this and the entire person. And you have to believe as somebody who's struggling and know they need to make a change that you have to believe that you're worth it. Because if you don't have that underlying self-belief that you're worth whatever changes you want to make, they're not going to work. Man. Wow. Thank you. That's, that's very powerful. I mean, coming from, from you who have gone through that, mm -hmm. that journey, um, that lesson rings loud and clear. Man. Thank you. So, and, and that is, um, that's why I feel it is very important for me to share my story because yeah. the, the obesity, the, the medical issues, the, the mental health issues, um, they touch a large swath of people. Yeah. both in our communities, nationally, globally. Um, so now I volunteer as a speaker and a writer with my, the local chapter of our National Alliance on Mental Illness. Uh, I, just four months ago, I, I was elected to their board of directors. So I have a say in the leadership positions of this. I've shared my story with elementary schools, um, corporate leadership groups. Uh, I'm part of the training for local law enforcement organizations. They have teams called crisis intervention teams. Um, and what they do is it's using civilian resources in conjunction with law enforcement and first responders to respond effectively to somebody who may be going through a mental health crisis that maybe 10, 15, 20, 100 years ago, somebody would have just been thrown in jail, which is not going to help solve yeah. the underlying mental health issues. Now, perhaps we can approach this from a different angle and see if we can help in that way. Well, me sharing my success story of getting through mental illness is, is important for the officers who may only see the ugly worst sides of mental illness and say, Hey, if we handle this appropriately, the person that I meet later tonight during my patrol shift could be 20 years from now sharing their success story to the next generation of crisis intervention people. Oh. So I think me sharing my story is incredibly important because it touches so many people and I can help a lot of people. Yeah. What has sharing your story meant to you uh, along the way? It's a confidence builder. I, I've become much more comfortable as a leader. Uh, I've become more confident in my abilities because I can stand confidently in front of a group of people, share my story, share some of the, the more disgusting, lurid aspects of being um, a schizophrenic and somebody who weighed 621 pounds. There are a lot of things that people that haven't weighed 620 pounds take for granted um, that you, you really realize how much we take it for granted when you are 600 pounds. Um, and it gives me confidence based on the feedback that I receive. 
when 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 people tell me that they have have a new perspective on life after listening to me speak i gain a lot of confidence in in myself and i i believe in the power of my message yeah even more and so that leads me to try and and touch an even greater number of people and and spread the message even as far as i can i i I do this to help people who are now where I once was, because I know how much that meant to me to meet a person like me now, 15 years ago. Yeah, man. What a great, a great use for your spotlight skills and <laughs> center of attention, really helping people. It, it's, Thank man, you. it's true. So just kind of to wrap up, if, if somebody's listening to this and they are, they're connecting with any part of your story, but feeling like, where do I even, where do I even start? What would be some of the advice that you would give? Depending on the part of the story that touched them, no matter what it is, if somebody is hearing my message and it resonates with them, they know deep down in their heart, the changes that they need to make. Um, it's a, it really comes down to a matter of the people in your world and in your life love you. They want you to be around. They don't want you away from here. And the world is a much more vibrant, better place with you in it. And it doesn't matter how small that first step is. It doesn't matter how difficult it is to grind through weeks four, five, and six. When you believe that you are worth the changes that you know deep down you want to make, everything becomes worth it in the end. And believe in yourself, believe that you can, and believe that you should. Again, the world is not better with you, not here. The world is a better place with you in it. And give it one more day. Wow. Nicholas Heenan, thank you so much. Thank you for, for the opportunity to speak with you, Nate. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate this. Wow. Right? What an amazing story. What an amazing man. Um, and again, like I just want to thank Nicholas for being on the show, for sharing his journey with us and for letting us um, take away some really important lessons from that you know the first thing i asked you to listen for was how um life is like a system of things that are all interconnected um and you know we, we have ways of breaking health down into different elements you know we have doctors that specialize in different areas but you know each one of us it's our job to um figure out how we how we feel best what works best for us um when um, we're pursuing, you know, wellness, health, and fitness, you know, which area needs to be addressed. And, and here's the bottom line. Um, one challenge or one setback might be connected to other challenges or setbacks that we're having. And rather than that being a huge, you know, source of, of negativity for us, it can actually be a really positive thing when 
we start working to sort them out. Because as we untangle one, you know, one problem or, or one thing that's causing us frustration or, you know, one um, outcome or result that we're not happy with, when we start figuring out how to make that happen, um, when it comes to the system of our life, things have a way of getting easier all around, right? When we start to untangle one thing, when we sort one thing out, well, other things kind of start to fall in place as well. So what's the answer? The answer is just work on one thing. Just focus on one thing and do the best you can to improve in that area and keep moving forward. Which brings me to the second thing that I asked you to listen for. And it was that that thing that got Nicholas going in the first place. Remember that conversation that he talked about with his friend after they had the fire outside? Like, I that stuck with me, right? He painted the picture for us of of that conversation. And it was the same thing that, you know, he ended with um, saying to each one of us as we um, look to uh, make changes to be healthier versions of ourselves. And it's something that we say a lot with our team. And it's that we change best when we're feeling good. We don't change very well when we're feeling bad. Um, so how do we do it? How do we leverage good feelings to help them to be a source of motivation for us? 